This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 469. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Psalm 30. A psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. So this psalm is called a psalm and a song. And this is the only time these two Hebrew words, mizmor and shir, are used together in this first Genesis book of Psalms. And in the other books, they're used together 12 times. We have a time when something is called both a psalm and a song. Psalm 18 was also called a song. There it was shirah, related to shir. And David said he praised the Lord with his song back in Psalm 28, verse 7. Again, the same word. Also mentions the new song in Psalm 33, verse 3, and Psalm 40, verse 3. So, we realize that Psalms are poetry. We believe that many, if not all of them, were also set to music. Now, what would be the significance of a particularly calling some of them songs? And not others, I'm not sure. I would tend to think they probably all were songs. But perhaps the song, the Shira, was a specific kind of song. Now this particular psalm and song was written for the dedication of the house of David. Now there are only four things that are said to be dedicated in the scriptures. There is the altar of the tabernacle, is said to be dedicated in Numbers 7, verse 10, 11, 84, and 88. The altar of the temple is said to be dedicated in Second Chronicles 7, and verse 9. And the rebuilt wall of Jerusalem is said to be dedicated in Nehemiah chapter 12, and verse 27. And then, of course, David's house is said to be dedicated here. Now this was the dedication, notice, of the house of David. So this is not the temple... Which remember that temple did not get built in David's days. It didn't get built till the days of Solomon. So this was not the dedication of the temple. This was the dedication of David's own house. And we can't help but compare this to Second Samuel, chapter seven, verses one through two, where it says, "And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies." that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. So we read this time how David had rest from all his enemies around him, and he was in his house. And he started to think about, well, I'm, I'm in an established house, but the Lord is still in a tent, in a tabernacle. So perhaps I should build a house, a temple for the Lord. So when exactly David's house was built, we don't know. It was built at least by 2 Samuel 7. But at some point it was dedicated. And probably its dedication was largely thanks to the Lord for bringing David to this place. Because, of course, at first David had just been a humble shepherd boy, the youngest of his family. And, of course, importance went by birth order back then. So being the youngest in a family of eight boys meant you were very unimportant. 
and he was son of Jesse, who, as far as we can tell, was not necessarily a leader in Judah. But then the Lord took him and made him king over all Israel. So, besides this, David, of course, had also been exiled, thanks to the jealousy and the madness of Saul for many years. So that the Lord had brought him, and then David, when he became king, he had to face attack from nations all around the nation of Israel. It seems like everyone but Tyre, Phoenicia, attacked Israel, and David had to fight them all off. Now, he hadn't fought them all yet. Ammon hadn't attacked him yet, but they did eventually. But finally he had rest. He was able to build his house. He was to settle, able to settle down and have his government. And so probably the dedication of his house was as much about that as about just being excited that he built a house. Now this event of the dedication of his house is not recorded in Samuel, other than perhaps if we can read it into Second Samuel 7 verse 1. Or just see there that he is in his house. But certainly it must have happened. We can see it must have happened. This psalm mentions it. Of course, all we need is one mention in Scripture to know something happened. So the establishment of his kingly house showed that the Lord's many promises to him had been fulfilled. But there was a far more important house dedicated to David, as we know. After David said that he wanted to build the Lord a temple, the Lord told David he couldn't do it. Because he had been a man of war, he wanted a man of peace to build his temple, so David's son would do it. But then the Lord told David that he was going to build David a house. 2 Samuel 7:11. And it is since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days are fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So David's house, established by the Lord, was more than just the building he lived in. It was a family line that will rule, he says, for the Olam. And ultimately that meant it was from David's line that Mashiach was going to come. Now notice that though this psalm is said to be a psalm for the dedication of the house of David, no author is listed. We would guess it was probably David himself who wrote it, but it does not say so. It could have been one of David's musicians who wrote it. So verse 1, he says, I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up, and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. So he extols the Lord. He highly praises the Lord. Because the Lord has lifted him up. And the idea is of drawing up, like you would draw someone out of a pit. And David had been in deep trouble many times, and the Lord had drawn him up out of the deeps. And now he was established in his kingly house in Jerusalem. So the Lord had indeed lifted him up. Then he says, And has not made my foes to rejoice over me. And that had taken place. Of course, the greatest of these had been King Saul, who had come very close to killing David, but there had been others like the Philistines 
some of the other nations around Israel, but the Lord had never allowed Saul or any of the other enemies to rejoice over the capture and the destruction of David. So he praises, he extols the Lord for doing that. Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. So he also says to the Lord that he had cried to the Lord, and that the Lord had healed him. Now the word healed here as means as a physician would do it. So if David had been ill, and we see, especially in this first book of Psalms, we see references to David being ill, we tend to think most of them we would ascribe to the time after his sin with Bathsheba when he appears to have suffered from a great illness. And his being ill was part of what gave Absalom and Ahithophel free reign to plot their conspiracy against him. However, we would suspect the dedication of his house was probably before his sin with Bathsheba, so that probably isn't what this is referring to. But the Lord had healed him, he says. Then verse 3, O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So he says that the Lord has brought up his soul from the grave. Now soul there is the word nephesh. That's the Hebrew word for soul. And it's the only word for soul in the Old Testament. So bringing up his soul from the grave means his soul was in danger of dying. Souls can die. And we see that throughout the scriptures. The scripture know of no such thing as an immortal soul, as is so common in the Platonic theory of many people. The scriptures instead speak of souls being capable of dying. Now the grave here is not the grave, that is the Hebrew Sheol. And we believe that Sheol, as we examine it, Sheol means the state of death. But it's death as a state, not a permanent thing. It's death with resurrection still in view. So the Lord brought up his soul from Sheol. Now we believe this was figurative in the past. That is, that David was in danger of entering Sheol, and the Lord had brought him up so that he didn't. He healed him. He rescued him from his enemies, didn't allow them to rejoice over him, so he was brought up from Sheol because he was in danger of entering it. Yet we realize that David also was a prophet, and prophetically, in the future, future from Psalm 30, David did enter the state of death. And we know that the prophets say that he will be raised up from it. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25, tells us about when David will be raised up from the dead. When it's, uh, it says... And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So David is going to be raised up from the dead, and he is going to be the prince over Israel, over God's people forever. So David is going to be brought up from Sheol. He has entered Sheol. He's been in Sheol for 3,000 years now, more or less. 
and yet he is going to be brought up from it. And then he says, Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Of course, that was the the past. In the future, David will has gone down to Sheol, and he will be brought up from it. But in the past, the Lord had brought him up from Sheol by keeping him alive, by not allowing him to die the many times his life was in danger. That I should not go down to the pit, and down there is repeated. That going down, I should not go down. I should not go down, down, to the pit. Now the word pit, we also translated a well or cistern. It's the idea of a narrow opening with a larger space underneath. Wollinger suggests a sepulcher, which of course would be connected with death. So the Lord had kept him alive that he shouldn't go down to the pit. Then verse 4, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So he calls upon the Lord's saints, and that's chasid, from chasad, which means grace. So literally, chasid means the graced ones. Not what we think of as saints, but graced ones. So he calls on the graced ones to sing unto the Lord. Of course, in the past, this is true, all those whom the Lord has watched over and kept them from death can sing praise to him. But in the kingdom, the Lord's graced ones will have been raised up from Sheol, literally. They've been raised up from death, and they'll be able to sing and praise him at that time. And then he calls upon them to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And that's Kodesh, his set-apartness, his holiness. And the Lord is indeed holy, set apart from all others. Verse 5, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. People say that God's anger lasts for all eternity, that he tortures people for all eternity. Well, did they never read Psalm 30 and verse 5? It says his anger is for a moment. Well, when we understand that the real punishment is death, we understand that death takes a moment. He doesn't sit there torturing them for all eternity. He destroys them. His anger lasts for a moment. But those who receive his favor, that's for a lifetime. And the lifetime, of course, if you receive Eonian life, lasts forever. So yes, the Bible doesn't say that his anger endures for all eternity. It says the opposite. Now we have a contrast here. His anger endures for a moment in his favor is life. But this seems to have translated away the contrast. Bullinger says the second line should be for a lifetime is his favor. So the idea is that his anger is for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. So that's the contrast we should have here. Then weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And we realize that weeping lasts for a night. We live in the time of weeping. We live in the in the darkness. And if there was darkness in the past, there is certainly especially dark in the dispensation of grace, where God has no no longer 
shines light directly from heaven, no longer gives inspiration, no longer gives prophets, no longer works miracles. We're tied down only to the word. So we live in the night period for sure, and weeping endures for this night. But there is a morning coming. It says joy comes, or and that's a, a cry of joy. A cry of joy comes at the break of day. And ultimately, this is when the morning of the Lord comes at the start of the kingdom of God. So at that point, weeping is ended, and a cry of joy takes its place. Then verse 6, And in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. But the way that is translated, it would have been foolish and arrogant for David to have said this in the past. And after the dedication of his house came the calamity with his son Absalom, so he certainly was moved, and he certainly would not have been correct if he said that. But if we realize that never there is not for the Olam, I shall not for the Olam be moved, yes, that is true. When the kingdom of God comes throughout the entire period up until the course testing period at the end when David is set on his throne he will not be moved from there he will not be threatened 400 years and more will go by and David will be stable on that throne so he will not throughout the Olam be moved until God seems to pause his flow for a time and bring in that kingdom test verse 7 Lord by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong Thou didst tie thy face, and I was troubled. So he says that the Lord, by his favor, by his grace, had made his mountain to stand strong. And I believe that David is referring there to his government. Bulger thinks it means Mount Zion. He says, which David had recently taken, recently captured in Second Samuel 5. Well, that's true, he did capture Mount Zion to place his government on, but I think mountains are symbolic, and David often uses them especially symbolically for government. Although Isaiah does the same thing and so forth. So I think that he means he's made his government to stand strong. Then he says, Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. Now could this refer to one of David's times of trouble in the past? And David had gone through times of trouble, of course, before he became king, and then after he became king of Judah first, he had troubles, war with the house of Saul, and so forth, and then trouble once he took the king, kingship, troubles with the nations around Israel. But I think we could also look forward to the future kingdom, when after his kingdom is not moved and his mountain stands strong for over 400 years in the kingdom then the time of the tribulation period the great testing comes when the Lord does hide his face and David and his reign are troubled David is forced off the throne by the rebels against the kingdom so verse 8 I cried to thee O Lord and unto the Lord I made supplication so who did David look to in this time of trouble? He looked to Jehovah. He looked to the Lord. And he cried to him. Then he said, Unto the Lord I made supplication. So 
So we see that same Hebrew figure of speech, the same thing put two ways. Now these, both the lords here are Jehovah, Adonai, and the second one is one of the 134 times when the Sophrim, the self-appointed editors of scripture, decided to change the name of Jehovah to Adonai. But originally both were Jehovah in this verse. So he cried to Jehovah, and to Jehovah he made supplication. Verse 9, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? So he calls upon the Lord to save him, because he says, What profit is there in my blood? What profit will you get, Lord, or will anyone get when I die? And... Of course, for the godly, death is no profit. To die is not gain. We deny that absolutely. Death is not gain. So we do not believe that death is profit. Now, there could be profit in death only in the sense that if we die, in a good way, if we die for the Lord, those who die for him, martyrs like Stephen in the New Testament, those who serve the Lord to death, well, there will be profit for them, but only in resurrection. It's not in death, because in death, there is no knowledge or wisdom, or there's no praising the Lord. There's no knowing anything. There's no doing anything. There's no profit in death. So David calls on the Lord, What profit is there in my blood when I shall go down to the pit? And the word pit there also means destruction or corruption. And he says, shall the dust praise thee? Now that's the same, that's the word for the soil. It's the same word in Genesis 3.19, or 2.19, excuse me, where the Lord takes the dust of the ground, the soil of the ground, and makes the man. So shall the dust praise the Lord? Now notice the obvious answer. The dust, the soil, shall not praise the Lord. So David shows that he knows, or else one of David's songwriters shows that he knows, that there is no activity in death. And yet for this very same truth, many people will reject the book of Ecclesiastes as being a book of inspired truth. They say Ecclesiastes is an inspired record of man's faulty reasoning. Well, is Psalm 30 an inspired record of man's faulty reasoning? How much of the Bible are you going to make faulty before you admit that what's faulty is your own doctrine. What's faulty is your own ability to believe God's word because you don't believe it. The dust doesn't praise the Lord. He says, shall it declare thy truth? No, it shall not. When you're dead, you don't declare God's truth. When you're dead, you don't praise God. You're not praising God in heaven when you're dead. You're in the ground turning into soil. And you can't do anything. The benefit, the only benefit is in resurrection. Verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. So he calls upon the Lord to hear him and to have mercy upon him. Now mercy there is Hanan, or grace. David wants the Lord's undeserved favor. So he calls upon the Lord to have grace upon him, to hear him, to have grace on him. And then he says, Lord, be thou my helper. So he calls upon him to help him. Verse 
Verse 11. Thou hast turned from me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. So again, as we had it, that his anger is for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. The weeping endures for a night, but a cry of joy comes at the break of day. Now we have the same thing here in verse 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. Of course, dancing there is dancing and rejoicing. Then you have put off my sackcloth. Sackcloth being the symbol of grief or grieving at the time. So he says, you put off or better torn open or torn off. You've torn open or torn off my sackcloth. And you have girded me instead with gladness. Of course, these are figures. No doubt David wore magnificent apparel at the dedication of his house. And likewise, when the time of the tribulation period ends and Jesus Christ comes to earth, I believe David at that time will be girded with joy. He'll be girded with gladness indeed, as will all those who love the Lord when the Lord comes to earth at last. Verse 12, To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. So he says that the Lord has torn off his sackcloth and girded him with gladness to the end that his glory may sing praise to him. Now glory there is the Hebrew figure of speech metonymy, where one thing is put for another. And obviously glory can't sing. But glory is put for the tongue that does sing the glory, or else for the mind that causes the tongue to sing the glory. So notice that the the glory is put for the the thing that causes it. To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. And he says, O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. And forever there is again the Olam. You will give thanks unto the Lord for the Olam. And that's why we thank the Lord too. Well, there are things to thank the Lord for in this world. We realize that there is much weeping, much darkness, much sadness in the night of this world. But we can give thanks without any qualification. We give, give thanks to the Lord for the kingdom. We can't say, thank you, Lord, for this life, even though there are hard parts to it. But we don't say that about the kingdom. The kingdom we can give thanks to him for completely, because that will be a glorious time indeed. Then it says to the chief musician, and again that should be in the subscript of Psalm 30, not in the superscript of Psalm 31. And so, even though this psalm was for a certain occasion, that is the dedication of David's house, he afterwards made it open for public use at any other dedication or at any other time to encourage people with the deliverance of the Lord. That though trouble may come in this life, the morning, the deliverance of the Lord, the time of rejoicing is coming. Psalm 31, a psalm of David. So the last one, we don't know for sure that Dave wrote it, but this one does say so. This is another psalm by Israel's great shepherd king. And in this psalm is another prayer, trusting in the Lord in the time of trouble. So he writes, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. So the Lord, David says that it is in the Lord he puts his trust. 
And the idea there of trust is to seek refuge to him, or he flees to him for protection. Now many people trust in many things, put their trust, their confidence, their hope in many things. Some it is in riches, in wealth. Some it's in their friends. Some it's in their own strength, or their own wisdom, or their own abilities, and so forth. But David says that his trust is placed in the Lord. His trust is in the Lord. And then he says, let me never be ashamed. But never there is not for the olam. Let me not be ashamed for the olam. Now remember when David is speaking, not just he himself, but also his kingdom are in the balance. When bad things happen to David, bad things happen to his kingdom as well. Now David could speak confidently and trust in the Lord. In the dispensation of grace, what do we have? Well, I don't think we have any guarantee that we will never be ashamed before our enemies. The fact is that a workers of iniquity could, in fact, win the victory, could put us to shame. But we do know that even if they do, even if they do carry out a clever scheme against us and put us to shame, that the Lord is with us even in shame. As long as we are relying on him. So he says, let me never be ashamed. It could happen. But he says, don't allow it to happen. Because I'm trusting in you. And then he says, deliver me in thy righteousness. Now David could pray that. That the Lord would deliver him in his righteousness. Now this is not an appropriate prayer for today. Because if God did deliver us, it would only be in grace. You won't say, oh, yep, you're righteous, so I'm going to deliver you. No, that would be judgment. That would be setting things in order based on something, based on what you've done. And God doesn't deliver us in judgment. He only would do so today in grace. So we can't call upon God to deliver us in righteousness. We can only call upon him to deliver us in grace. But David could call on him to do that. Of course, he wasn't speaking in the dispensation of grace. And certainly in the kingdom, this would be a proper prayer as well. Verse 2, Bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. So he calls on the Lord to bow down his ear to him, which of course refers to listening to him. He wants him to listen to him. And he says, deliver me speedily, rescue me speedily. And he says, be thou my strong rock. And the idea there is of a cliff of refuge. We realize that when David was on the run from Saul, we saw that he hid in the caves, the caves that existed in Judah, that he was in the stronghold, it says, and so David was very familiar with cliffs of refuge, because that's where he would take refuge. So he calls on the Lord to be his true cliff of refuge, because though those caves, he wasn't always safe just because he was in the caves. But if the Lord was his cliff of refuge, then he would be safe. He would be a house of defense to save him. Verse 3, For thou art my rock and my fortress. 
Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. So he says that the Lord is his rock and his fortress, or his rock and his stronghold. And again, David experienced this many times in his exile from the wrath of Saul, as he hid in caves in the rock, and these were his stronghold. But now he looks to the Lord to be his true rock and his true stronghold. He says, therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Now, why would it be for the Lord's namesake? Well, remember, the Lord had identified himself with David and with his reign. So since the Lord had identified himself with David, his own reputation was on the line. So David calls upon the Lord not to rescue him for his own sake, but he calls on the Lord to rescue him for his own namesake. He calls on him to lead him and guide him. And guide there is to a place of safety or rest. Bollinger suggests this means gently guide and lead. Verse 4, Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. So pull me out of the net, or Bollinger thinks this should be a statement, Thou shalt pull me out of the net. And that would show his confidence as in previous verses. He says, pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me. So notice that he was in a net his enemies had laid for him. So they had laid a trap and David was caught in it. Now we can think of the time when David was being chased by Saul and the army of Israel and David was going around one side of the mountain, they were going around the other. And Saul and his men started to close David in. They had him surrounded. They had him backed up against the mountain. They were ready to swoop in and destroy him. And David was caught in the net. There was no way out. But then what happened? The Lord pulled him out. Suddenly a report came to Saul, the Philistines are attacking the land. And David and his men are there. Sure, they've finally been caught. Saul is going to get them. There's no escape. And then they just watch as Saul's army just melts away and disappears. And imagine that, how that must have felt to David and his men. And David realized that the Lord had pulled him out of the net. There was no way he could have gotten out of it himself. So he says, You are my strength. Verse 5, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And that's the Ruach. And the Ruach, the spirit, is connected with the mind. So David means his mind, his inner being. Or the spirit could be put for the entirety of his person, his very life. And we probably recognize this verse, Into thine hand I commit my spirit, as a verse that was quoted by Christ on the cross as he died. We see that in Luke chapter 23, in verse 46. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. He gave up the spirit. And Stephen followed his Lord's example with a similar statement, although it wasn't an exact quotation like the Lord's was, in Acts 7 and verse 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
So David says, Into thine hands I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So notice what follows here. That David is confident that the Lord, when he commands his spirit in the hands of the Lord, that Jehovah El of truth, God of truth, will redeem him. And the Lord Jesus Christ was confident that he too would be redeemed or delivered by power from death, as David was. And like Stephen, we too will find our ultimate delivery from death in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls him the Lord God of truth. Truth here also has the idea of that which is reliable. And truth is important to God, and all that God says is reliable. Verse 6, I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. What are lying vanities? Those who trust in lying vanities. Well, lying vanities, vanity is just the old English word for emptiness. I mentioned many times in the Pilgrim's Progress where it talks about Vanity Fair, that means emptiness fear. Vanity Fair was just full of the empty things of the world. They would try to pull Christian off the path of following the Lord instead into chasing after the empty things of the world. So lying emptinesses, what are lying emptinesses that David is referring to here? Well, these are idols. We realize that the people who made those idols, they didn't look at it as worshiping a statue, but they thought that that statue represented a god. There was a god behind that idol. And when they prayed to that statue, they were praying to the god behind it. But the Bible calls idols emptinesses because there is no god behind the idol, and all you're really praying to is the statue. So David hated those who regard lying emptinesses. And we too should hate all false gods in the light of the true God. Because when we consider the true God and his greatness and his power and his character and his person and then compare him to these false gods, well, that's why we should hate the false gods in the light of the true. Now, well, in our society, we're not used to people necessarily trusting in idols. Many today trust in many empty religious practices rather than trusting in true faith in the true God. And so they too trust in empty things. Now the word vanities here also is used for a breath. And so it could refer to reliance not just on idols, but lying breaths. It could refer to men who, as the Bible says, their breath is in their nostrils. So those who regard lying breaths, men who claim to be something, who claim to be saviors, who claim to be great, and really they aren't great, they, they can't do anything to save, can't even save themselves, not to mention others. So others might trust in idols, others might trust in men, but David says, but I trust in the Lord. Verse 7, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. So he rejoices in his mercy. And again, this is the word for loving kindness or grace. He rejoices in God's grace. Why? Well, because God had considered his trouble. He would looked on his trouble. And he had known his soul in adversity. 
soul there is the Hebrew nephesh. Again, it refers to David himself. He has known David. He has been with David. He's been there for David in adversity. Unlike idols, which of course can't be there for you at all. Verse 8, And hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my foot in a large room. So the Lord did not shut David up into the hand of the enemy. Now hand there, of course, is put for power. So he's not left David, abandoned David into the power of the enemy. Instead, he says, You have set my feet in a large room, or in a wide place. So instead of being in a trap, like we had back in verse 4, David has freedom. Instead of being shut up in the hand, in the power of the enemy, David is free. He is in a wide place. He is not hemmed in. He's not trapped. So the Lord set him there. Verse 9. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. So he calls upon the Lord to have mercy upon him again, to show favor or grace to him. He says, for I am in trouble. So in his trouble, he calls upon the Lord for grace. And again, like we had it in verse 1, he's looking to the Lord in his trouble. He's trusting in the Lord. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. So he is weeping, and it describes it as if the, the very weeping is causing his eyes to waste away. He's weeping so much. So his eyes consumed with grief. Then he says, my soul, that's nephesh again, my soul and my belly. A belly suggests that it's, this is the figure of speech, synecdoche. And synecdoche means uh, where part is put for the whole. So the belly is put for the whole body. We always say grief can often throw our digestion off. But his eyes, his soul, his belly are all being consumed by grief. We realize that means his body is being consumed by grief. So the belly is put for the whole body. Then verse 10, For my life is spent with grief, and my ears with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. So his life is spent, it wastes away with grief, and his years waste away with sighing. So it's like he had used up his remaining years with grief. Even though he was, it should not be coming to the end of his life at his age. Because of his grief, his years are spent. His life is spent. And because of his sighing, his years are spent. Then he says, My strength faileth. Because of mine iniquity. But Bollinger points out that in the Septuagint and the Syriac, it's not because of my iniquity, it's because of my humiliation. Now, if we're looking at this psalm as being partially prophetic, at least in some ways prophetic, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself on the cross, of course, he did not sin, though David did sin in the past. At the same time, of course, Christ took our sins, he took our iniquities on himself on the cross. So we could say it was because of iniquity that he wasted away, although it was not his own iniquity. 
So because of my iniquity and my bones are consumed. So again, if his bones are consumed, certainly the body that surrounds the bones are consumed. So he means that he is dying. He's wasting away. He's wasting away with grief. He's wasting away with sorrow, with sighing. And the rest of his life is spent. And we can certainly imagine a sufferer on a cross saying those very things. Verse 11, I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. So he was a reproach to all his enemies, and that means a joke. So all his enemies are laughing at him. This reminds us of what the religious leaders did when Christ was on the cross. They laughed at him, they mocked him, they made a joke out of him. So I was a reproach among all my enemies, but especially to my neighbors. And we realize that as Christ hung on the cross, those who passed down the road and passed by, saw him hanging there, mocked him. Said he saved others, he can't save himself. So he was approached to his enemies and to his neighbors. And a fear to mine acquaintances. And that is those who know him. Now those who knew the Lord must have been appalled by his marred appearance on the cross. The soldiers had plucked out his beard. He had been beaten so badly. It must have hardly been recognizable. Now in David's case in the past, we realize that David, because of his iniquity, verse 10, because of his iniquity with Uriah and Bathsheba, he was struck with a terrible illness. It seems it even made a, might have been leprosy or some terrible illness. It fell upon him after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So those who knew him were afraid of him. And of course they would be afraid if indeed it was leprosy. Leprosy was so communicable that they would stay far away from the leper. And those who saw him without fled from him, of course lepers had to go around, they'd cover their mouth, shout unclean, unclean when anyone got near and the people would, of course, get away from them, stay away from them. So this would be the description of a leper. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. And those who were leprous were considered already dead. And so again, we wonder if even this terrible illness might have been what struck David after his sin. Of course, whatever illness it was that he had, he must have been delivered from it, because later on, of course, he's perfectly healthy during the flight from Jerusalem. But when you were leprous, they considered you like you were dead already. You were forgotten out of your former place. And of course, the same thing was true of those who hung on crosses. Though they were still alive hanging there, they were considered as good as dead. Their life had come to an end, and there was no sense even thinking about it anymore, because that was the end of them. So he says, I am like a broken vessel. Well, we realize that in their days, they were not a throwaway society like we are. You know, we'll have these nice little containers they'll give you at fast food restaurants, eat the food out of it and throw the container away. Well, no, they would never throw away a perfectly good anything. And so they would use anything as long as they could. But once a vessel was broken, it wouldn't be worth bothering with. So once a vessel is broken, 
they would say, well, there's there's no use. There's no way. And, you know, other things, they may patch them back together. If they're broken, they might try to figure out some other use for the pieces. But a vessel that was broken, they said, oh, forget it. There's no use for that. So men were already thinking, it seems, about the next king after David. And Absalom was already preparing for his own kingship, trying to set it up so he would become the next king. And everyone, it seems, were confident that David was already dead. He was going to die from his terrible illness, and they didn't even have to consider him anymore in their plots and schemes for who's going to be the next king. So he was considered like a broken vessel. Verse 13, For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. Well, they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. So I've heard the slander of many. Of course, that was true on the cross. Christ had heard the slander of many for his, really his mock trial, his show trial, which was, no justice was done at Christ's trial. But David heard the slander of many. Well, he was ill and on his bed. He was being slandered by his own son Absalom, who was claiming that David didn't care about justice and didn't have any judge in the gate to hear the important matters of the Israelites. So he was being slandered by many, and in the words that got back to David, but what could he do? He was so ill, he couldn't do anything about it. So fear was on every side. Maybe David realized that the hearts of the people were turning against him. And he was afraid. What if these powerful foes would move against him even now? And they took counsel together against him. They devised to take away my life. And again, this is soul. Not just the life. The soul is put for the life. So it seems that his enemies were not willing to just wait and see if David would die naturally. They were plotting against his life, even as he lay sick and helpless. It says verse 14, But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. He returns to what he said in verse 1, that even in this time when he's surrounded by enemies and Seems he has no friends. They have fled far away from him. He trusts in the only one he can trust in, and that is the Lord. So David doesn't try to come up with clever and devious schemes of his own to match the devious schemes being used against him. His enemies are trusting in their plots and in their schemes, but David is trusting in the Lord. Verse 15, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. So David realizes that his enemies would like to take his times into their own hands. They would like to decide that David's time has come to an end. They would like to bring an end to David's affairs. He says, they're in your hand. So he says, deliver me from the hand of mine enemies. Deliver me from their power. And notice he wanted to be in the hand of the Lord, and he didn't want to be in the hand of his enemies. Well, that certainly makes sense. And notice he says, I want to be in your hand, not in their hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies and from the hands of those who persecute me. Don't allow them to have power over me. Verse 16. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. So he calls upon him to make his face, of course that's put for his presence, 
Make, his sh- make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Look upon me. See me and cause me. You think of somebody's face shining on someone, it means they're pleased with him. So look at him, be pleased with him, and save me for thy mercy's sake. And that would be, again, your loving kindness' sake or your grace's sake. Save me for the sake of your grace. Verse 17, Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent in the grave. So he calls upon the Lord to not let him be ashamed, because he has called upon him. Then he says, let the wicked be ashamed instead. Now, such prayers, we realize, are not appropriate for the dispensation of grace. David is saying, save me because I trust in you. Let, let the wicked be ashamed. Save me from shame. Let the wicked be ashamed since they're wicked. Well, in the dispensation of grace, the Lord is not going to repay the wicked according to their wickedness. But in David's day, he, he might. He did, oftentimes. So he says, Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent. And it means struck dumb. Let them be struck dumb in the grave. But again, that's not the grave. That is Sheol, the place of death. And of course, death would stop their mouths. And what happened to David's enemies? Well, Ahithophel went and hung himself. That shut him up. Absalom, of course, Got stuck, his head was caught in the tree. Job and his men went and executed him on the spot. So that shut him up as well. So in Sheol they were struck dumb. Verse 18, Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. So he says, Let the lying lips be, be bound. And understand that in God's kingdom there is no freedom of speech. You're not free to lie. You're not free to slander. You're not free to speak what's not true. In our day we we need to have freedom of speech because, of course, we realize that people have different opinions. And while there will still be opinions, I'm sure, in the kingdom, about the things that God has revealed, there will be nothing but truth, and either you're going to believe it or not. And there'll be no freedom to lie. He says, let the lying lips be bound, which speak grievous things. Grievous there should probably be translated arrogant. They speak arrogant things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Now such things are constantly being spoken today in things like movies, in television programs, on the radio, in the media, in school classrooms and among our acquaintances. We hear arrogant things being spoken proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. But we know that such godless talk will not go on forever. Someday God will put all such speech to silence. Verse 19, O how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. So God's goodness is great, and he has laid it up for those who fear him. Now notice, God laid up goodness for those who fear him. And what is that? That's imputed righteousness. He gives his righteousness, his goodness, to those who 
reverence him. And he worked the goodness. He worked it for those who trust in him before the sons of Adam. And we too should trust in the Lord rather than trusting in the sons of Adam. Many people, it seems, they can't be able to do that. They have to trust in men. The only way they're going to believe the Bible, if they can make the Bible match up with what men say is science. The only way that they can think they can trust the Bible is if they can make the Bible match up with what men say is history. Or what men say is biblical criticism. Well, that shows that what they're really trusting in is the sons of men. But God lays up his goodness for those who trust in him before the sons of men, the sons of Adam. And that's what we should trust in too. Verse 20, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. So he says, You will hide them in the secret of your presence from the pride of man. Think of all the years that David was hidden from Saul, and yet he was right there in the land of Judah. We see the time when Jonathan just goes out to the wilderness where David is and seems to just find him easily and walk right into his camp. And yet Saul is searching for him for years and can't find him. So the Lord truly was hiding David from his enemy. Well, here it's put for all those who trust in him that the Lord will hide them in his presence from the pride of man. And those who trust in the Lord will be hidden in the wilderness when they flee to the mountains per the Lord's command in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. The Lord will hide them there in the mountains and he will not allow the man of pride, the arrogant ones, the rebels against the kingdom to find them there. Now when you think of them being hidden in the secret of his presence, we compare that to Psalm chapter 27 and verse 5 that we studied last time where he said, For in the time of trouble, we think that's the tribulation, in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret, or in a secret place, in his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And we believe that in the tribulation period, David will be hidden in a secret place in the very temple or tabernacle of God. And Psalm 27, verse 5 was the last place in the Psalms where the word secret, cathar, was, or sathar, was used. And here it's used again. David is going to be hidden in a secret place in the temple. And he says he will hide all those in the secret of his presence. From the pride of man. This would be the conspiracy of man. Man here is Ish, not Adam, like it was in the previous verse. But this is the conspiracy of man. In Psalm 2, remember the conspiracy that takes place to rebel against the kingdom of God. And so he will hide those who trust in him from that conspiracy. And he says, Thou shalt keep them secretly. And that's the same word, again, used in Psalm 27 and verse 5. And the same word was used back in verse 19. That God has laid up his goodness. And the word laid up there could also translate it that he has secreted it, secreted away, secreted it away. He has secreted away his goodness for those who fear him. Well, here it is. He's going to keep them secretly in a pavilion 
or a tent. That's not the same word used in Psalm 27 and verse 5, but it could still be referring to that same secret place where David will be hidden. But like I said, all the righteous will be hidden in the mountains in the Great Tribulation when they flee to the mountains. In Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 16, It says, Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them off far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. So the Lord had promised in Israelite, the Israelites that though he scattered them among the nations, he would be a refuge for them in all the countries where they were scattered. He would be a little sanctuary, a little refuge for them, for all those who trusted in him. So in the same way, the Lord is going to keep those who trust in him secretly in a tent, in a secret place, in his presence. And he'll hide them there from the strife of tongues. And tongues here, of course, is used for the word spoken by them. Now we may lose face in the sight of men due to the slandering of the wicked, but we need not fear ever losing face in the sight of God when we stand for righteousness in a godly way. Verse 21, Blessed be the Lord, for he hath showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. So he blesses the Lord. This means spoken well of. Spoken well of is Lord. Speak well of the Lord. For he hath showed me his marvelous loving kindness or grace in a fortified city. And this, no doubt, is Zion, Jerusalem, the fortified city where David was experiencing his grace in the past and will experience his grace in the future kingdom of God. Verse 22, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. So David spoke, but he spoke hastily. He said, I'm cut off before your eyes. It seems he was so deep in trouble that he felt that Jehovah was just going to stand by and watch as he was destroyed. Yet this was a hasty judgment, and it turned out to be untrue. The Lord did not just stand there and watch as he was cut off. The Lord heard the voice of his supplications when he cried to him. Verse 23. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful, and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. So he calls on all his saints to love the Lord, and again that is graced ones. All ye graced ones love the Lord, for the Lord preserves the faithful. And David knew that well by experience. He had been preserved through trouble. He had been preserved from enemies. He had been preserved through illness. The Lord preserved him. And yet the Lord, he says, plentifully rewardeth a proud doer. And pride is always our enemy in serving the Lord faithfully. As soon as we start to be proud, we will start to go off track. But those who are given up to pride, who act in pride against the Lord, he will reward them as well. We understand not in the dispensation of grace, although sometimes sin brings its own punishment, but he will plentifully reward the proud doer in the life to come. And he says, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. 
And again, David knew of experience that if he would be courageous, the Lord would strengthen your inner, his inner being. And those who he calls upon, all ye who hope or who, ex, who await, their expectation is in the Lord. And we are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have our expectation, our confidence in him. So David trusted in him through all his trouble, and again in this psalm we see the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. A foreshadowing of that, trusting in the Lord in all his trouble. And he too was delivered at the end of it. So that finishes Psalm 31. And we're out of time for today, so we'll continue with Psalm 32 in our next study.